Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Perfect Faith Podcast. I'm Kirk Klingerman, your host. This is episode eight of season four, and we're diving back into the book, Perfect Faith, His Faith, Not Ours. And of course, this is the audio version, podcast style. We've got one more chapter after this one, and then we'll be wrapping it up next week. This is chapter eight, entitled Out of the Box. And this is a chapter that will help you actually get out of the box and get into the relationship you're supposed to have with the Lord. Now, I mentioned last time that we were doing an, uh, an interview with Pablo Acosta, who's the host of Benching in the Kitchen. We did that interview yesterday, and let me tell you something. It was amazing. This episode coming up on October 22nd, mark your calendar, October 22nd is when we're going to release that podcast with Pablo Acosta. It will blow your mind. And let me suggest to you that you share it with your friends because I believe it's going to really minister to them. And I believe what he had to share is going to hit so many different people where they're at at different levels. It's like I say, it was just a tremendous time with him. So again, mark your calendar for October 22nd. That's the release of the podcast. And uh, share it with your friends. Please do. So with that, let's jump into the book. Chapter 8 out of the box. Walking by the faith of Jesus requires the elimination of the boxes in which we attempt to place God, others, and ourselves. It means putting away the formulas and allowing the mind's strongholds to be destroyed. It's more than anticipating God doing great, unexpected things around us. It's letting Him do great things in us. Often our boxes are limitations that were acquired by virtue of life and learning. These limitations were internalized and need to be extracted in order for us to reach our fullest potential. This extraction is something only the Lord can accomplish, which He does in conjunction with Holy Spirit working in us. Even though it's done with great care, it can feel like He's trying to destroy us. It's not us He is destroying. Rather, He's destroying that which keeps us from producing much fruit. Let's look at a word picture to get a better grasp of the concept. Think of it in terms of the master gardener preparing the ground to plant his seed in the soil, which is a metaphor for our heart, and his vigilant care for the soil after his seed has been planted and takes root. The ground needed tilling so it could be soft enough to receive seed. Rocks and stones had to be removed in order to give roots room to grow. Some ground required more preparation than others. Similarly, some people faced harder circumstances than others in order for their hearts to be softened enough to receive the Word of God, also known as good seed. And to be clear, much of those circumstances was of their making. The master gardener never compacts the soil. Weeds, also known as the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things required removal as to not choke the plant once it begins to grow. Understand that weeding can be painful because it causes upheaval in the ground. When, need, when weeds are pulled, so are the roots, and the ground moves along with them. Remember, the ground, or the heart, is being made ready for his use. There's a healing process which may include the need to open long-standing wounds in order to expel old hurts. Love opens those wounds and extracts the roots. Through grace, mercy is applied to them 
in order to complete the healing. Water is also applied to them, which points to the cleansing process of the Word used by the Holy Spirit. Basic gardening reveals water is necessary for the seed to grow to full maturity. Any dead branches, also known as dead works, are pruned in order to yield more fruit. In this chapter, we're going to delve into some of these limitations from a scriptural, scriptural standpoint and add some clarity that will bring a release by the Spirit. It is not for the faint of heart. It is for those who are serious about a closer walk with the Father by the faith of Jesus. It's about having deeper intimacy with Daddy. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That's Hebrews 12, verse 1. By definition, weight denotes a bulk or mass and is used metaphorically as a burden, hindrance, or encumbrance. It can be likened unto carrying a heavy load while trying to run a race. It hinders us from completing the course set before us. Imagine trying to run a marathon nonstop while carrying a 100-pound pack. How much easier would it be to complete the course minus the pack? In reference to sin, a major theme in the book of Hebrews is unbelief and departure from the faith. Conversely, we also see faith and patience endurance as a common thread throughout the book. The phrase, the sin which does so easily beset us, could also be rendered the sin that so easily surrounds or clings to us. If we are burdened by the cares of this world, taxed by circumstances and situations out of our control, or by hurts and failures, unbelief will seek to surround and cling to us. It is time for the limitation of unbelief to be utterly destroyed through the process of exposure, repentance, and healing. Exposure One of the identification processes that God uses is exposure. When we are unaware we're carrying excess baggage, the Lord will bring it to our attention. It's during trials we find what's lurking in our heart, soul, and mind. As the saying goes, sometimes we don't know what's in the cup until it gets bumped. There are instances when the Lord will allow events to take place in our lives so our cup gets bumped. In these moments, we are to rejoice and ask for wisdom. When things seem to be falling apart, ask God, what is going on? Is this a trial of my faith? Is there something you are trying to show me about myself that I'm unaware of? Is this something that I brought on myself? For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. The words dividing asunder is only used here and in Hebrews 2, verse 4, where it is rendered gifts. Essentially, it means division or separation, but it also has to do with distribution in relation to gifts. In the context of separation, 
It does not carry the sense of complete severance or detachment from one part from another. Rather, it points to a dividing line. In Hebrews 4, verse 12, it is a separation for clarity or inspection. Essentially, the Holy Spirit uses the word to penetrate us to the core of our being. The word of God is truth, and it sanctifies us or cleanses us. Furthermore, Jesus said that the words he speaks are spirit and life. He also said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In the process, Holy Spirit is able to show us what is in our heart from a spiritual perspective instead of a natural reason. As we look through the eyes of the Spirit, we see things as they really are, or from God's frame of reference. When we look from a natural standpoint, we can go to extremes and miss our chance at repentance and healing. By virtue of rationalization, a fault can be overlooked. On the other hand, we could make it such an issue that we harshly judge ourselves and refuse forgiveness and healing. We become our own prosecuting attorney, jury, and judge. In so doing, we place ourselves on the throne. This is where denying the self and picking up our cross comes into play. We deny ourselves the right to prosecute, declare guilty, and pass sentence. Basically, we need to let God be God and do things His way. Strongholds For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. As we begin to identify some of those things that hinder our relationship with the Father, it is important to keep in the forefront of our minds that we already have the victory. We are not trying to gain the victory. Remember, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. God is for us. He is not against us. He wants us to walk in victory or he would have never made provision for it. He wants you to win. Thoughts and Imaginations The mind is perhaps the biggest battlefield in which we war. Wrong thoughts concerning God, including his character and nature, along with faulty thinking about other people, can be some of the greatest hindrances of our walk. In the New Testament, the phrase stronghold is only found in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. And in the literal sense, it means fortification or fortress, or if you like, castle. Attached to it is the idea of holding something safely or holding fast. In the metaphorical sense, it refers to an argument, reasoning, or strong point in which someone trusts. Strongholds are negative connotations. They work like tinted glasses, altering the true color of what is seen. In essence, they taint our perceptions of the truth. Sometimes, just identifying what's going on with us is half the battle. Once something is identified, Holy Spirit can lead us in what to do next. So what are some of those things that contribute to wrong thinking? The subjects listed below will give us a general basis on which to work in order to help identify potential strongholds. Nevertheless, we still need to allow Holy Spirit to guide us in every aspect of the process relating to what's going on in us. 
hurts, and fears. Experience can be a cruel teacher that uses hurts and fears to instill the lessons learned in its classroom. Have you ever wondered why some believers have such a hard time believing God loves them? Why does it seem it so easy for some to trust God while others struggle? Many have had their faith assaulted by the enemy when he attacked them while they were young. For example, how many children have had their trust destroyed by a parent who was supposed to be trustworthy? How many were belittled by those they looked up to, now believing themselves to be of little or no value or any use? As stated before, often the way we view our earthly father is the way we view God the Father. Look at, it, look at parenting and how it relates to life experiences that either lends itself to distorted points of view or to our more accurate perceptions. Since no one has had Parenting 101, we need to cut our parents some slack for the mistakes they have made. For those of us who are parents, we need to extend to ourselves that same courtesy. Simple parenting excludes vicariously living through our children, which eliminates glorifying ourselves through them. Being ashamed of our children usually means that they reflected poorly on us. It reveals we are not interested in their failures because it hurt them, as we are with how people look at us as parents. What kind of parents are they anyway? Perhaps some fear their character will be called into question or outright discredited. After all, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. If they failed, we failed. Maybe one reason some children have a hard time succeeding in life as they mature is they're told nothing they do is ever good enough. This, is all, this also applies to the overachiever. Those who judge their work as never good enough tend to become perfectionists and are never satisfied with anyone else's effort either. One gives up on life because he believes he will never amount to anything, while another may achieve great things to the casual observer, but he himself is never satisfied with his place in life. People who desperately want to succeed through their children can be the most critical, and that parental trait may be passed on to the next generation. Many learn that love is conditional. If I perform well, dad and mom will love me. People who grew up in performance-based environments have a difficult time with the concept of unconditional love. The idea that God the Father could love them unconditionally is absolutely foreign to them or difficult to grasp at best. Perhaps this description fits you. Listen, friend. God's love for you is unconditional. Otherwise, you would not be hearing this. Huh? Yes, this was written just for you because God the Father wants you to know Him and His unconditional love for you. Moreover, He wants you to receive His love because He really does love you. He wants to have a relationship with you. In short, He wants you. Failure should be used as building blocks for growth in the sense of learning from mistakes. Above all, children should learn that they have unconditional love from their parents. Parents can help their children by guiding them through the learning process gained by making mistakes. For instance, when a toddler is first learning to walk and falls down, what does the parent do? Scream at him? Telling the toddler to quit trying because he will never succeed? Hardly. 
They pick him up and encourage the child to try again. Come on, you can do it. Oops, that's okay. Here, try again. That's it. You've got it. All right, come to me. When we fall, Abba is there to pick us up. Oh, yes, he wants you to succeed. If you listen closely, you can hear him. Come on, you can do it. Oops, that's okay. Here, try again. That's it. You've got it. All right, come to me. Going just a little further, discipline should be purely for the benefit of the child, period. It should not be retaliation through punishment based on anger or resentment. God the Father corrects and disciplines those he loves for their benefit. For parents and future parents, here's a couple questions to chew on. Does our Father treat me the way I treat my child? Do I treat my child the way he treats me? Remember, the thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. The earlier the enemy can begin his assault on people, the easier his job will be. In the early stages of life, we are the most vulnerable and impressionable. Many of our perceptions of life are formed at a young age. The seeds of destruction planted in childhood tend to have deep roots and require the master gardener to remove them, so the rest of the garden may grow as he intended. Many have had their childhood stolen through various dysfunctional family lifestyles. Everything from alcoholism to drug addiction, from anger to extreme rage, from an early death of a parent to divorce and abandonment or both, and from negligence to outright child abuse in its many forms. This list could be enlarged and expanded, but you get the point. Not only are there bad experiences people pick up along the way to adulthood, but also those picked up in adulthood. With hurt comes a broken spirit. Often what accompanies hurt is fear, with its various types and intensity. An obvious one is the fear of letting your guard down to avoid getting hurt again. Others include the fear of rejection and betrayal, fear of death, fear of people, and even the fear that God will not fulfill His promises, and the list goes on. The deeper the wound, the bigger the fear, and the more selective people are with letting others in their life. I know people, and you probably do too, that have been so hurt in their early childhood that it was a struggle to accept Jesus Christ into their heart. Not only was that difficult, but in the beginning stages of their walk, it was, it was a struggle to trust Him to meet their basic needs, such as food and shelter. Trusting Him with deep personal issues was a stretch, to say the least. And yet, Jesus proved Himself every step of the way. In that process, He led them to green pastures, still waters, and rest for their souls. Fear has torment. Fear can paralyze people into inaction. It hampers one's ability to think and to respond appropriately. Because of the fear of failure, many will not even try. Ironically, others won't try because they fear success. Even when change is a good thing, people can be afraid of it. For instance, when growing up in a negative environment, people learn the rules of that environment. They learn survival techniques in order to exist, including various forms of manipulation. When taken out of their element, they don't know the new set of rules. People generally are uncomfortable with what they don't understand. They dread not knowing what to do. 
Unfortunately, fear also teaches us if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. While this phrase can relate to being careful about not being swindled in life on the negative side, it can lead to doubt and unbelief. When God wants to bless us, it teaches us not to believe it. Sometimes it is a good idea to pay attention to what we say because we may repeat some wrong things that we have heard all of our life. The things of God can sound too good to be true, but they are not. To say they are would be unscriptural. As the Lord continues to lead you in your walk, more than likely you're going to find yourself in in uncomfortable situations. These situations are not there to destroy you. They are part of the healing process that will take you to new levels of trust and intimacy. Change is a good thing. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness will stop our relationship with God cold. This is perhaps one of the biggest weights we can carry. When we don't release others from their offenses, we will not be released from ours. In some instances, the offender is unaware of the offense. He or she will keep moving on even when left unforgiven by the injured party. It's the one who remains offended who cannot move forward. If you find your prayers don't seem to go any farther than your lips and God is not blessing them, maybe examine yourself and see if you have unforgiveness. Ask Holy Spirit to help you see if you're missing anything. Bitterness. Bitterness has become a food of choice for some, leaving no room for the sweet taste of the Lord. Bitterness is defined as an inner poison, which is exhibited by severe harshness. Generally, bitterness is the result of unforgiveness. It is for this reason we ask others to forgive us when we have offended them. It's not for our benefit, i.e. getting off the hook in order to ease our conscience. It's for theirs. When a person hangs on to bitterness, it begins to eat them alive. By asking others to forgive us, we are actually asking them to release us so they can be released from the poison that accompanies unforgiveness. Anger. If you found someone who is always angry, chances are you have found someone who has been carrying deep hurts. Anger works like a bandage that protects a wound or a fear. There is a sense of power that comes with anger. Likewise, people use it as a survival technique to keep others at bay in order to keep from getting hurt. For some, it's used as a form of manipulation to get others to perform. It makes those starving for attention and validation the central attraction. Attraction. Now they are the life of the party. Ask yourself a few questions. Have I ever used anger to get someone to do something? Have I used anger to get what I want or to get my way? Those who are accustomed to using anger tend to justify their actions by their anger. I was angry and couldn't help myself. I didn't mean it. I was angry. Those with an angry mindset are predisposed to anger. They determine ahead of time that they will react in anger to a set of given circumstances. We've all heard, if such and such happens, I'm going to be mad. Somehow it has become a license to sin. It removes the responsibility of a person's actions. With anger, people feel empowered to do or say things they ordinarily wouldn't. It becomes their courage and a weapon in their arsenal of manipulation. Unfortunately, abusive anger is one of those things that can be handed down from one generation to the next. Even Proverbs tells us to 
Make friendship with no one who is given to anger or one who holds anger. And don't associate with anyone who is wrathful, lest you learn his ways and get your soul in a snare. There are those who have grown up in homes that were constantly filled with anger. Even though they were determined not to live a lifestyle of anger, it still holds them in its tightly clenched fist. They learned from previous generations to cope with life using it, and for some, it has led to a violent lifestyle that landed them into prison. Even though they are not behind bars, many are stuck in personal prisons with no foreseeable way out. Similar to the one who explodes out of anger, speaking things that should never be uttered, and in a fit of rage, physically hurting those he loves the most. In the aftermath, he is laden with guilt, which lends itself to self-loathing, resulting in more anger and frustration. The cycle repeats itself over and over. Those who have been caught in its path of destruction learn that such anger is natural and expect God to be angry with them too. How many times have we heard someone remark, God must be punishing me? Sadly, the anger may have started with an unhealed wound that festered into bitterness, which led to anger that was passed to the next generation. Wounds suffered in the course of life can join unforgiveness, bitterness, and anger in an unholy alliance. How easy is it to extend mercy when one is angry? How easy is it to let go of anger if you do not forgive? If poisoned with bitterness, how easy is it to forgive and put away anger? Forgive. Forgiveness is paramount to our relationship with God. If we will not forgive, especially after receiving forgiveness, we cut ourselves off from His. By failing to forgive, people begin to limit the healing process in their life. Healing is found in mercy, and forgiveness is part of mercy. When they fail to extend mercy, they are no longer in a position to receive it. Freely we have received, freely we give. If you have a tendency to get sick a lot, it may be a good idea to ask yourself if you are failing to be merciful. Sometimes we need to ask the Lord to show us what we don't see. Forgiven is a non-option that is based upon a decision, not a feeling. If you find it difficult to forgive, come boldly to the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Sometimes the pain of a wound suffered or offense is so great that it is emotionally difficult to forgive. When it comes time to release someone from his offense, deep resentment surfaces. The stomach churns and the blood begins to boil. Thoughts of retaliation come to mind instead of peace and forgiveness. We find ourselves screaming out in frustration, I can't. What then? We go to the Father and ask for the grace to help in the time of need. We ask the Lord to not only give us strength, but to be our strength. I can't forgive this one in my own. I need you to be my strength in order to make the decision to forgive him. We confess our weakness and dependence on him, and in his mercy, the Father grants us grace to forgive. Grace is not just unmerited favor from God. It is the ability from Him to carry out the things of God, including forgiveness. When we make the decision, He gives us the strength and ability not normally found in ourselves. We must understand that Jesus knows precisely what we're going through. 
Seeing then that we have not a great high priest, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. If anyone had to write not to forgive, it was Jesus. But thankfully for all of us, he did. Until we forgive those who have hurt us or offended us, we will never have true peace, period. Do you want revenge? How about ultimate revenge? Forgive. Remember, the enemy of your soul wants nothing more than for you to not forgive so that you yourself would be without forgiveness. Our motivation should always be love, and through love we overcome the offense, and in so doing we overcome the darkness. Therefore, go even farther and pray for the perpetrator. Extend mercy to the one who does not deserve it. God extended it to you, didn't he? Think about it. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Part of maturing in the Lord is extending mercy to people because they need it, not because we will get mercy by extending it. Another key to healing is forgiving ourselves. Time and again I hear people say, The most difficult person to forgive is myself. To you, who will not forgive yourself, who do you think you are? You might reply, huh? You shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3. If God has forgiven you, who are you not to forgive yourself? When you hold yourself in judgment, you place yourself on the throne, making yourself a god. I'm not going to be miserable. I'm, I'm just going to be miserable for a while because I deserve it. That's not the way of the Lord. Read the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, verses 11 through 32, and see how Father really responds to repentance. In truth, when you are not forgiving yourself while deciding to stay miserable for a while, you are just feeling sorry for yourself. Secondly, it's not true repentance. It's some sort of game being played in order to feel, in order to feel better about being forgiven. It is also a form of pride. You have to do things on God's terms, not yours. So get over yourself and move on to what God has for you. Release. Put away the anger and release the bitterness. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you and with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32. Wrath is an outburst of anger, and even though it is more passionate than anger, it's more temporary. Conversely, anger is less sudden in its rise than wrath, but by its nature, it's longer lasting and more apt to include vengeance. Wrath describes more of the feeling, whereas anger relates to the act of emotion. The word clamor means outcry and has to do with a tumultuous noise. It relates to the noise heard in a riot or loud shouting. In relation to sorrow, it means loud crying or wailing, but in context of the verse, it has more to do with the former. In this case, all of those words are destructive in nature. Let's face it, when bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor are in the same room, evil speaking will surely be there too. 
We all have to make decisions to forgive or not forgive. Likewise, we have to make the decision to hang on to bitterness and anger or let them go. So then, how do we put away anger and bitterness? Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. When we receive the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit becomes part of our new nature, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And temperance, by the way, is self-control. Our limited power makes it difficult to put away bitterness and anger. Some people can suppress them for a season, but eventually they show back up unexpectedly. Hence the importance of relying on the power of Holy Spirit to put them away. It becomes a question of making a quality decision to submit completely to God, who works in us through the Spirit's power. Fruit, as in fruit of the Spirit, is in singular form. It means one cannot choose one fruit over another. For example, I cannot choose to walk in peace and forego the rest. I cannot mix and match, picking some while leaving the others out. All of these virtues are to be operating in and through us. When we walk in cooperation with the Spirit, bitterness and ungodly anger have no place in us. They will not have dominion over our lives because God has given us dominion over them. The more submitted we are to God, the less power the things of the world have in our lives. Salah. Two keys which have already been covered also apply to this to the releasing of bitterness and anger. The first is forgiveness, which cannot be overstated. Without forgiveness, anger and bitterness will continue to reside within. The second one is coming boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Rejoice! God has given us everything we need to overcome these things and so much more. Renew! I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Proverbs 23, verse 7. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Where you set your thoughts is the direction your thinking will go. What you meditate on is what you will gravitate to become. To whom you present your mind will be whose thoughts you receive and make or take on for yourself. To whom you choose to listen will be the one who influences you, good or evil. Consecration of the mind is vital for holiness. This involves re a renewal process whereby we stir up a pure mind by way of remembrance, remembering what the Lord has said to us, both written and spoken through Holy Spirit. It involves active meditation, which includes consistent feeding on His will and word. God has given us the mind of Christ that we may know what He has freely given to us. Furthermore, He has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even His Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we submit to the mind of Christ, which includes consecration of the thoughts and imaginations and what or whom we meditate on. The prince of the power of the air seeks to use the desires of the flesh in conjunction with the desires of the mind, which includes the thoughts and imaginations. However, God has given us the mind of Christ so we may know the mind of the Lord and to be instructed by Him. 
By setting our mind on God and the things of God, our thought life can be sanctified unto Him. Conversely, if we continually listen to the voice of the Prince of the Power of the Air and set our mind on the world, our thought life will be consecrated unto the devil and the old nature. Our old nature was that of disobedience which designated us to wrath. Whom we choose to listen to and what we set our minds on will influence whether we will walk by faith or unbelief, by the Spirit or the flesh. When people could become more concerned with entertaining the mind than renewing it, they find the things of God tend to be become more obscure. Entertaining the mind tends to lead it to an inactive state where it becomes easier to be influenced by the prince of the power of the air than by the Spirit of God. Worldly entertainment lulls the mind to sleep and opens the door to carnality, especially when done in excess. Media is often used to disseminate carnal thinking or reasoning. For example, when a person pays more attention to talk show hosts than the Word of God, man's wisdom becomes the standard by which he thinks. Their schools of thought sound good to the natural ears, but more often than not, they are contrary to the Word of God. When a person inundates himself with worldly thinking, the lines blur and God's Word becomes cloudy. Here's another example. Many people consider nature shows to be good programming. Is good programming one that disseminates evolution instead of biblical creation? When a narrator, who sounds intelligent and speaks smoothly, declares that things took millions of years to evolve, is it possible that his words work like little seeds being planted into the heart and mind, which in turn can cause doubt concerning what the Bible clearly states? Look at how many nature programs teach and promote evolution, then have sponsors using the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life to promote their products, many of which, incidentally, we would be better without. Mediums, you know, movies, TV shows, books, and so on, which don't use cursing, sexual innuendos, violence, and the like are not necessarily good, let alone godly. Consider all the self-help material that is available to us. How much of it lines up with the Bible? A lot of it, frankly, promotes independence and pride along with outright witchcraft. C compare those things with the Bible. Do they complement it or are they contrary to it? And let me interject something real quick here. No one is saying that you should never read any other books. There's a lot of books out there that are really good that would be helpful, but just be careful. Maybe pray about whether or not you should read a book or not. And when something obviously is blatant, you know, discard what is contrary to the words. It's pretty simple. But there are a lot of good books out there that can really help you understand things like business or relationships and so on. But again, your ultimate guide is the Bible. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. If we are going to move forward with God, we need to keep our thoughts on the things of God. Confusion arises when we try to mix the things of the world with the things above. It does not work. Natural human reasoning can be short-sighted and has no real eternal value. 
The God of peace is with those who dwell on and do the things of God. Love. Walking in love is vital to healing in our spiritual existence. Remember, faith requires love because it works by love, and perfect love casts out fear. And above all things, have in fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. The word fervent means intense and comes from a word that means to stretch or extend and alludes to be strained from being stretched. It is a state of constancy, which means that we are perpetually extending love to others. Have you ever heard the phrase, an ounce of prevention equals to a pound of cure? When walking in love, we're less apt to be offended, hurt, or angered. It's very difficult to hold on to a grudge while walking in it. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love is long-suffering and not easily provoked and quietly covers. When walking in love, we tend to overlook the offense because we're looking to benefit the one whom we're extending love. Case in point, if there are unsaved loved ones in the family, we're going to walk in love in order for them to come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It could mean that if they say something offensive, we overlook it for their sake. If they do something unseemly, we're going to ignore it by not acknowledging the offense in order to gain their soul for the kingdom. Certainly, there may be times when it is necessary to say something because the circumstances dictate it. Love does speak the truth. Nevertheless, while in a constant state of love, we are walking in a constant state of forgiveness. Sometimes we are the only Bible non-believers are going to read, and it is vital to consistently extend mercy. It does not mean that we place ourselves in a position of compromise by going along with their sin. It means we are not going to hold a grudge. Sometimes unbelievers will test the veracity of our love and faith. When they see the sincerity of God's love working through us, it draws them to Him. The milk of the Word benefits us, but the meat of the Word benefits others. Interestingly, Proverbs 10 verse 12 tells us that love covers all sins. As already stated, we extend mercy because others need mercy, not, near, not merely because we want its benefits. Walking by love means we are into the meat of the word, Salah. Love frees the hand of God to work in our lives and gives us the confidence to come to Him and receive. When our love is mature, we are not fearful of God's wrath because we know we are free from it. We are not concerned that He doesn't care about us. We are confident in Him. We are confident He's going to complete in us what He began and deliver us from bitterness, fear, and anger. With love comes peace. The fear of man. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Proverbs 29, verse 25. With the fear of man comes the desire to please man, and there's a greater concern about what man thinks than what God thinks. It can cause us to do things contrary to his word. Even the apostle Peter was once affected by this principle. In Galatians, we learn that Paul had to confront Peter in Antioch because Peter withdrew and separated himself from the Gentile believers when some Jewish believers who were sent by James came on the scene. Why did he separate himself? Because of the fear of the Jewish believers. His actions caused other Messianic Jews who were with him to do likewise, including Barnabas. Because of the faith of Jesus, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, but the fear of man caused Peter to backpedal from this new principle. 
With that comes another lesson. Do not let the fear of man stop us from following the Word of God, no matter how contrary it is to the culture we live in. Here's another principle. If we happen to blow it, the Lord is very faithful to restore us as he did Peter. Oh, yes. Peter may have stumbled initially, but he had a strong finish. God still works through our humanity. Often the desire to be validated by others lends itself to the fear of man. When it comes to people-pleasing, which can be passed off as godly servanthood instead of the bondage it really is, people-pleasers not only tend to be manipulated by others, they themselves become manipulators. After all, the motivation behind what they do is not pure. It is laced with ulterior motives, from doing things for the sake of acceptance to avoidance of rejection. The motivation is self-based. Some do things for others simply to be appreciated, not purely for the sake of blessing them. So, let's talk about appreciation and how it relates to pleasing God versus people-pleasing. When we do all things as unto the Lord, we do them whether or not we are appreciated. Thus, our actions being acknowledged by others is irrelevant. When we do things for the Lord by doing them for others, it won't matter to us if they appreciate what we did for them. Walking in love frees us from the trappings that come with the concern of being appreciated. Our motives are pure, and when people do not appreciate what's been done for them, we are not offended, even if they are resentful towards us or despise the deed itself. Look at our ultimate example, our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for all, yet not everyone appreciates what he has done for them. In fact, many blaspheme his name because of their hatred toward him. Yet, he did it for the Father and was not offended. In fact, he continues to reach out to those who despise him. Think about this. Jesus knew in advance people would not only be unappreciative of what he did for them, but they would reject him and the life offered to them through his death and resurrection. That's not to say we should not appreciate others and what they have done for us. Rather, our motivation should not be appreciation. Likewise, it doesn't mean if others do appreciate our actions, they are of no value, unless, of course, we are broadcasting it to the world. It is hard to extend acts of kindness based upon appreciation. If what someone does is not appreciated, he will be less inclined to do things for others ever again. We have all heard, well, if they don't appreciate the things I do for them, I'm done trying. I'm so unappreciated. This leads to another point. If we were to do things for the appreciation, we would not be doing them for others. We would be doing them for ourselves. All we are doing is seeking validation from others while using a form of manipulation that is not easily detected. A sobering thought is how much of what we have done will actually be burned up because it was wood, hay, and stubble. In a similar vein, when we do things for recognition, we are not doing things for others, nor are we seeking to glorify God. We are doing things for ourselves and seeking our own glory, which is wood, hay, and stubble. Again, walking by love seeks to glorify God and benefits others for their sakes alone. Beware of the flesh. It is crafty and will seek to creep into your walk. When we're busy trying to please ourselves instead of the Father, we become hollow and most miserable. Therefore, let's deny ourselves pick up a cross and follow Jesus, doing things to please the Father while honoring the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Servants, 
Be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same he shall receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8. Singleness. If we understand singleness of heart and the fear of the Lord, the fear of man quickly dissipates. If our hearts are centered on the Lord, we become focused on what pleases Him. If we are truly single in heart toward Him, then faithfulness is a byproduct of all that we do. For instance, if we are doing all things as unto the Lord in a work environment, we are going to be faithful to carry out our duties with excellence, whether the boss is there or not. We are working for God and our boss benefits. When the boss lays out a task and gives specifics, we pay attention to detail as if Jesus himself spoke to us, as long as it is not contrary to the word of God. This is part of obedience unto the Lord, obeying those he puts in authority over us. When it comes time to submitting to another person's authority, there is a vital principle we touched on in the last chapter referring to 2 Corinthians 8 verses 1 through 5. As you may recall, the favor of God was bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia because of their liberality under severe conditions, including poverty. They pleaded with Paul to allow them to give in order to take part in the fellowship of ministering to the saints. Looking at verse 5 again, But this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Before the Macedonians would submit to the Apostle Paul and those with him, they first gave themselves to God. Then they submitted to Paul and the others by the will of God. If it were not his will for the Macedonians to submit to them, they wouldn't have. If we are to walk in the freedom of God intended for us, we need to heed this principle. Otherwise, we may very well put ourselves under bondage to those who should have never been given authority over us. If we are men-pleasers, then we violate the principle of first love first. That is, we begin to put people ahead of God, which is very displeasing to Him. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you, because you have left your first love. We are not being honest if we put people ahead of the Lord and then say, He's our first love. When we love God first, we will be able to love others properly. As we immerse ourselves in Him, and he immerses himself in us, we're able to allow his love to flow out of us and into their lives. Fear. Peace of mind will come with the fear of the Lord and the expulsion of the fear of man. When we are too concerned about what others think, anxiety can gain a foothold, especially if we worry about what they think of us. Our concern should be what God thinks, and when we find out what he thinks of us, what others think will be of little consequences. In truth, our concern of what others think should be filtered through love in respect to their welfare. This relates more to winning the lost, edifying the body of Christ, not being stumbling blocks, and so on. After all, it is not about us. It's about Him. The fear of the Lord puts away preconceived notions about submission in that we are not the ones who dictate to what or whom we submit. Submission has to be the first course of action before any other can be taken. 
Action stems from obedience. It's not some action of our choosing. For example, Father, how long do you want me to fast? Perhaps a better question would be, how may I serve you? If we hear or sense God telling us to fast, then we might ask him how long. What good is it if we choose to fast calling it submission when God did not call us to do so? What good is our fast if we fail to extend love? By the way, this is not about fasting, it is about submission. And yes, you can choose to fast on your own volition. That being said, what good is it if we are choosing to submit to one thing while the Father is asking us to submit to something else? What is the fear of the Lord? The word fear used in both the Old and New Testament languages means dread or terror, as well as reverence, respect, or honor. The fear of the Lord is a reverent respect that seeks to honor Him. With it comes a sense of accountability to the Lord, a love for holiness, righteousness, mercy, and justice, along with a disdain for sin, evil, and wickedness. It leads one to be mindful of Him and the things of God. It leads one to the fear of missing Him, but not in the sense of doubt or unbelief. It is wholesome and truly keeps one from the terror of God. It is not so much concerned with judgment except in the sense of others falling into condemnation and the desire to see them saved. After all, perfect love casts out fear. And ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The fear of the Lord maintains integrity and in that all one does will be to the glory of God. The fear of the Lord means having a reverent fear of dishonoring Him without the sense of doubt and unbelief. The following are some verses to really think about in relation to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and knowledge. Proverbs 1 verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 9 verse 10. The fear of the long prolongs days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. Proverbs 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Psalm 19, verse 9. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy, and the evil way, and, thy, and the forward mouth do I hate. Proverbs 8, verse 13. And fear not them which can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, verse 28. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Ephesians 5, verse 21. Corrupt teaching. Often strongholds are developed from incomplete teachings which do not have the full counsel of God or only have part of the picture. They are also developed from downright false doctrines. In some instances, the way people view Scripture is the result of the things they have been taught by others, including parents, close friends, and those who they consider knowledgeable in the Scriptures. That may also include TV, radio, and social media personalities. Natural reasoning leads to corrupt teaching and that much of it is derived by personal opinion, not based upon the Word of God. As mentioned briefly in the introduction of the book, we should always compare someone's work or teaching with the Bible as the Holy Spirit leads, regardless of the credentials of the individual. If we were to elevate someone in our mind to a place they don't belong, we could actually elevate them above God's Word. For example, a favorite teacher could teach something that does not line up with Scripture, which 
we could possibly overlook because of who said it. Regardless of who it is, his or her teaching must line up with the Word of God. Now, the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned onto fables. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4. At times the Word of God offends people, and in some cases where they have not been rooted and grounded in it, they depart from the faith. When there is a desire to have things our way, the temptation might be to gather those around us who hold the same point of view while avoiding those who may reprove us. Similarly, one might be inclined to only read certain passages of Scripture to support that point of view while avoiding others that contradict it. Essentially, the temptation is to try bending Scripture to our way of thinking instead of seeking to conform our thinking to God's Word. The Bible is very clear that in some instances this tendency is based on a lust. If a person tends to avoid the truth, it is time for him to examine his heart to see if there is a lust lurking, lest he gets swept away by seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Another pitfall is always seeking new revelation. With it comes the urge to seek those who are always teaching new doctrines, whether or not they are actually true. Some of it stems from the pride of life, in which one wants a reputation for being deep, as it were. These revelations can come from concocted premises, and in some cases, God gets blamed for them. God showed me this. Whether it is a thought that came to mind or something we may think we see in Scripture, There should be at least two or three scriptures to support such a premise in full context of chapter and verse. Keep in mind that true revelation is an already existing truth revealed by the Holy Spirit. The lust to be known as someone who is deep can open the door to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Study. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. Do you study the Bible with the intent to conform to God's perspective? What about studying on the side of faith and truth? Part of the learning process might include studying to ensure what's being taught or seen in Scripture is so, not to see if it is true or false. For instance, studying to disprove a premise may lead to error on the side of doubt and unbelief. It's one way to actually eliminate truth from our hearts or begin to doubt the things of God. Sometimes studying to disprove a premise finds its way into debate, which is something we are to avoid. Beware of trying to prove someone wrong. Conversely, we do not necessarily want to prove our point. Instead, we seek to find the truth concerning a premise, and once it's found, anything that is errant will be evident and discounted. If you can be confused on an issue, you do not have the truth regarding it. If you have the truth, you cannot be confused by anything false. Adopt the attitude of the Bereans. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. John 8, verse 31 and 32. Then said Jesus unto the Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word... 
Then you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Don't fear the truth. Embrace it. The more the truth we have in us, the freer we are. Keep in mind, the Bible was written for everyone who would believe. Therefore, it is meant to be understood by all who are called by his name. This means God intended for more than just a select few to understand his word. Jesus said that Holy Spirit would teach us all things, bring all things he spoke to remembrance and guide us in all truth. Every believer can be taught the word of God by Holy Spirit. Therefore, commune with him in his word, and in the process you will renew your mind. Traditions of Men Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do you transgress the commandments of God by your traditions? Matthew 15, 1 through 3. Well said, Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For the laying aside of the commandments of God, you hold the traditions of men. And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition, making the word of God non effect through your traditions, which you have delivered, and many such like do you do. Mark 7, verses 6 through 13. Traditions are acquired rules of thought or action, such as religious practices or social customs. It is cultural preservation of social attitudes and instructions. The traditions of the elders could also be known as the traditions of the Pharisees. The Pharisees delivered to the people, by tradition, many of their ancestors' commandments that were not written in the Law of Moses. On the other hand, Sadducees rejected them, saying that what was written should be disregarded as obligatory, but that which came down by oral tradition need not be kept. Traditions or men are formulas that limit Holy Spirit in the life of the believers. They teach men to rely on man or his methodology, which in turn restricts the Spirit from doing anything new or fresh. Sometimes traditions spring up out of people trying to emulate someone else's experience with God without going through the process it took to receive it. Case in point, it is easy to mimic someone than to personally go through an actual wilderness experience. It's easier to be taught or read someone else's teaching than to study for yourself. It is less threatening to hide behind someone else's teaching than to present one's own. It takes away from personal responsibility. Basing a belief system on an individual's experience limits Holy Spirit because there is a tendency to reject anything he says or does that differ from that system of belief. Likewise, verses of Scripture that present an opposing view tend to be overlooked or interpreted to fit said dogma, thus missing the full counsel of God. In some cases, following man's tradition can cause a disconnect with God if that tradition becomes more meaningful than the actual relationship with Him. Just as Jesus said, The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The tradition becomes the relationship, or worse still, it becomes a God. It turns into the focal point instead of the Lord. Another danger of man's tradition is it can become works-orientated. The following is purely an illustration. 
Let's say you hold a personal tradition of taking communion every Monday morning at 6. On a particular Monday, you oversleep and miss the appointed time, foregoing it altogether. As a result, you feel less than holy and find yourself profusely asking God's forgiveness. It becomes some sort of self-righteous act, which is a departure from the Lord's original intent behind communion. Prior to this event, you pridefully thought to yourself, I'm the only one I know who does this with God. Who knows? Maybe in one sense, the Lord ran interference to wake you up from self-righteousness by not quickening you when the alarm failed to go off. He really does have a unique way of dealing with such things. Compare. A very simple way to deal with traditions of men is to compare a belief system with the Word of God as Holy Spirit leads. A key in this comparison is humility. We must remain teachable if we want Him to reveal those areas in us that need to be changed. Guilt, shame, and condemnation. The primary focus on the word guilt in this section is the emotion of inadequacy attached to it, and not so much committing an actual offense. This is the unholy counterfeit of the conviction of the Holy Spirit used to manipulate and impede one's ability to function as a child of God. Shame has to do with humiliation that crushes the soul. It thrives on embarrassment while calling it exposure. Shame is the demonic counterfeit of being humbled. It seeks total destruction and disgrace, whereas godly humility raises the individual up. It's a stinging emotion that feeds on guilt and shortcomings by use of reproach as its thorn. In this case, condemnation is an unholy blame or pronouncement of guilt without due process based upon a fault-finding attitude. Hearsay, personal opinion, and wrong perceptions are the primary evidence given in this kangaroo court. It's a satanic attitude in which the brethren's accuser sums up the spirit behind it. The question that arises is, are the feelings of guilt always bad? The answer is unequivocally yes. As already stated, guilt is a counterfeit of conviction. Both affect the emotions, except guilt uses emotions against the individual. On the other hand, conviction leads to repentance. Guilt drives a person farther away from God, not closer, and it leads to shame and condemnation. Conviction not only leads a person to repentance, it draws him to God because the Holy Spirit is doing the work based on his love. There is no love in guilt. Its very core is manipulative and destructive. For example, guilt is used to get people to perform in a manner that is pleasing to its user. The only one who benefits is the one who employs it. There is no give or receive. It's all take. Guilt is also used as a weapon of retaliation. One of the ways some individuals get back at others for wrongdoing is to make them feel guilty about what they did. They are not interested in repentance for the perpetrators. They just want them to pay. They want to have power over them, even to the point of making them grovel. Guilt is used to keep others at bay or under their thumb. Before playing Holy Spirit, we should consider if we do, we may drive others away because we would be imparting guilt instead of conviction. If, however, Holy Spirit is speaking and working through us, our words and actions, or even our silence or inaction, will, will convict. Conviction calls for change and humility answers the call. Guilt just holds on and makes you aware of your shortcomings. With guilt comes pride and with pride, rationalization. After all, guilt beholds to no one when pride is involved. 
Pride cannot receive forgiveness, whereas humility can and does. Even though individuals may hate the feelings of guilt, pride will not allow them to be washed away. The odd thing about guilt is that it is self-perpetuating. Since pride does not allow one to do things God's way, those who feel guilty will seek to compensate for it in order to alleviate the dread of those feelings. They may seek to do good things to make up for the feelings of inadequacy while trying to balance the scale. Unfortunately, they're just dead works since the motivation is impure. While the deeds may benefit another, the focus is still on the self. For instance, when one offends another, he may use the old, I'd feel better if you'd accept this peace offering technique. It has nothing to do with how the other is negatively affected. It's more concerned with the guilt he's feeling. Conviction, on the other hand, is concerned with the pain caused to others. In turn, one may feel remorse based on the fact another has been injured. The desire is to restore and heal the other. You can discern when a person is driven by guilt or impure motives by their statements. In this case, it might be, I don't want them to be mad at me, as if them not being mad somehow makes it okay. Pride tries to earn forgiveness while humility asks and receives it. The former manipulates, the latter allows free exercise by relinquishing any control over the other. In the former, one can never do enough to alleviate the the guilt. So the individual feels guilty about his inability to make up for it. It has no sense of assurance he's been forgiven. On the other hand, when someone humbly receives forgiveness, guilt no longer plays a role. Unfortunately, people often attempt to escape feelings of guilt by doing things that actually produce more of them. For example, how many have turned to drugs and alcohol in hopes of extinguishing the dread of guilt, only to wake up the next day feeling more trapped than ever? Adding insult to injury, they discover that in their stupor they have committed some other crimes and it increases. How many have sought to compensate by overeating or power shopping only to feel guilty about the overindulgence? or purchasing things they couldn't afford with money they didn't have. The list goes on. Impulsiveness can be a sign of compensation. Without true repentance, guilt perpetuates. Another case in point. Some may believe they repented for wrongdoing and yet still feel guilty because they are planning to commit the same offense again. Their idea of repentance was groveling over the remorse they felt as the result of the guilt. They used the groveling to show sincerity, when in reality there was none, as if somehow the groveling would make up for the offense. In some cases, because they simply got busted, they'll say, I'm sorry, though in reality they haven't repented. When one feels guilty, perhaps it's time to have a reality check. We really need to get honest with God and ourselves. Am I repenting or am I merely sorry? For some, Guilt has been a lifelong plague, which stems from a lifetime of accusation from those near to them, such as a parent or sibling. The blame is given to the innocent, who in turn comes to believe the accusation is true. I must be guilty, even though I don't remember doing such a thing. Then there's the guilt associated with another's shortcomings and failures. It's because of you I am the way I am. Similarly, There is blame placed on another because of one's unhappy lot in life. If you weren't born, I would have been in a better place than I am right now. 
You can expand this to a variety of situations, but in them all, the innocent is made to feel guilty for the inadequacies of others. Those who have grown up in such environments can be found blaming themselves when things go wrong, whether it's in their personal life or in that of others, even when it's not their fault. This is also reflected in the situations that are out of their control. They tend to take responsibility for other people's losses. Somehow it's always their fault, even if it is merely because they are alive. Heroes are sometimes born out of this environment because of the propensity for them to come to the rescue. To compensate for the guilt and feelings of rejection, they will swoop in and make everything right. When they cannot be there, they feel guilty because they could not save the day. Show me a hero, and I'll show you someone who has grown up with feelings of guilt and shame most of their life. The definition of hero used here refers to those who just have to be there. Of course, there are those who are heroic in the pure sense of the word, but the heroic deeds are the results of the only true hero working through them, and his name is Jesus. The former is dysfunctional in nature, whereas in the latter, it's pure in spirit. Shame says you are damaged goods and you are worthless. It declares you are doomed to failure and everything you set your hands to do will fail. It isolates people, leaves them to feel no one will want them, much less be around them because of their failings. They tend to believe it's the result of who they are. Those who have suffered a lifetime of shame often have a tendency to be loners because they feel safest in an isolated environment. In a reclusive atmosphere, there's no one to remind them of their failings and cause them to feel the sting of shame. However, there is no one to build them up and influence them in the way they view themselves. Thus, they maintained a skewed personal hypothesis, and no one is going to disprove it. I'm destined to be a failure. On the other hand, shame sometimes has the opposite effect. Some who endured a lifetime of it spend the remainder of their existence proving that they are no one to be ashamed of. They become very success-driven. However, success is never enough because it never fills the void caused by shame's sting. On the outside, they appear to have it together and become the popular ones, whereas on the inside, they're hurting. They feel absolutely worthless no matter what accolade they receive. People can hide behind their successful business, athletic abilities, good looks, popularity, and so on, but it does not heal the hurt. Until they find healing in Jesus Christ, they will never feel complete or whole. Oddly, they will never quite feel successful. It's lonely at the top takes on a whole new meaning because it can also be a place of isolation. There is no one there to remind them of their shortcomings and no one to cause them to feel the sting of shame another hero is born. A parent, especially the father, can inflict shame. A child's validation normally starts with his parents, and if his parents are ashamed of him for whatever reason, there is none. How many sons and daughters have grown up longing to hear daddy say, I'm proud of you? Sometimes shame is the result of a parent or a family member who causes the family to suffer reproach. For example, those who grow up with an alcoholic father will feel shame by virtue of having the same last name. They grow up feeling too ashamed to have friends over because they don't want to, their friends to witness their dad in a drunken stupor. This is only one example, as there are many other types of reproach that affect the family. 
Some come to believe that they have character flaws by virtue of associations. Others believe if they fail to fail at something, it's the result of their character. No matter what they do, it's never right. This is especially true of success-driven families where failure is not an option. Oddly, a success-driven family can be born out of shame. Again, just as guilt perpetuates guilt, so shame perpetuates shame. One may be driven to be successful all his life to hear, I'm proud of you, while another may be driven to prove I'm not like him or I'm not like the rest of the family. Condemnation affixes blame and says, you deserve everything you have coming, and yes, you should feel guilty and ashamed. It says there's something innately bad about you, and every negative aspect of life is the result of your character. Those who grow up with condemnation tend to be judgmental of others. What you do is who you are, leaving no room for mistakes and repentance. They have a difficult time seeing good in anything, let alone anybody. Condemnation lends itself to skepticism. People come, become very doubtful concerning the motives of others, which cause them to question their integrity. They simply will not trust because everyone is guilty. The ironic thing about this attitude is it also lends itself to self-righteousness. By condemning or judging everyone else, people make themselves feel righteous. Yet they are judged because they do the same things of which they accuse of others. Accuse others. While they love to criticize others, they have a lot of reserved criticism for themselves. Guilt, shame, and condemnation are an unholy trinity. Guilt makes one feel bad for failing, shame makes one feel like a failure, and condemnation makes one feel like one is bad. Those who have grown up in this environment have also known what it is to be manipulated from guilt trips to being shamed for failing to perform to atoning for past transgressions. It's not a simple act of forgiveness. It's earning the forgiveness. Granted, there should be appropriate discipline for wrongdoing, but it should never be connected with forgiveness. Forgiveness should come before the consequences and should never be the result of it. If one is without Christ, one is a sinner, and by nature, one will sin. In that case, those who sin do so because it's in their nature. As believers, we cannot expect sinners to act like believers and become disappointed or upset when they don't. Just love them, forgive them if, it, if need be, and pray for them. As believers, we should be free of guilt, shame, and condemnation. When coming out of that bondage, the old mindset loves to cling to it, even to the point of causing a person to sabotage himself so he can feel those ungodly feelings again. Change can be scary, at least that is what the old man says. Let's keep the old man crucified and move on with courage and boldness. Overcoming Guilt, Shame, and Condemnation There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Romans 8 verse 1 in Christ, we are no longer condemned. We are free from condemnation as well as guilt and shame. Carrying guilt, shame, and condemnation essentially means one still needs to renew the mind. It's either that, or he does not believe the word, has truly not repented, or has placed himself or others in the place of God, thus holding himself captive to that bondage. Whomever we place above God's word is on the throne instead of God. Whatever we place above his word is an idol. 
Therefore, the first step to overcoming this unholy trinity is to believe God and take Him at His word. The principle is laid out in Romans by the example of Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. When we believe God, we are counted as righteous in Christ Jesus. Who are we to say any different? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 21. Think about it. We were made new, which is better than a do-over. In Jesus Christ, we are placed in a position of not having sin. We don't have to go back and try again. We don't have to make up for it because Jesus paid the price. Being made new, we have a new start with a new nature, which catapults us into victory. It means everything we do in Him is destined for success. None of this is possible in and of ourselves. Even if we could go back, we would either sin in a different way or repeat the same ones. We would either replicate the same mistakes or create new ones. Either way, we still would blow it. Because of His great love for us, He not only forgives us, but He never holds our past against us. Think about that for a minute. If you are still holding the past over your head, who do you think you are? If God doesn't do it, why do you? He wants us to be reconciled to Him. So if you want to make up for anything, do it on His terms. Repent, receive His forgiveness, learn from the past, and move on with Him. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. When we present ourselves to God, our old nature is crucified with Christ and all that goes with it, including the negative personal hypothesis. We renew our minds by getting into the Word and allowing Holy Spirit to teach us and sanctify us. It's time to allow God to reveal to us the way He sees us and receive that revelation. Know that you are precious in His sight, and He wants you to win. A suggestion. Look up the verses of Scripture that relate to forgiveness, victory, and your identity in Jesus Christ. Put them on some 3x5 cards and learn them. Do more than memorize them. Come to know them by taking to heart what He says. Let them become His word to you. Say them out loud. Watch what happens. The flesh. One last area that we will briefly deal with in this chapter is the flesh. This I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so you cannot do the things that you would. Galatians 5, 
verse 16 and 17. The flesh referred to in this section and these verses of Scripture pertains to the old carnal or worldly human nature. It's the part that deeply desires to oppose the spirit because by its very nature it's unsubmission and wants to be satisfied on its terms. It must be denied and crucified daily if we are going to follow Jesus. The flesh is very deceptive and will use our past hurts and lust against us in order to have its way. For instance, it will use our upbringing and childhood hurts just to justify its ungodly appetites. If the flesh is allowed to have its way, it will shun responsibility on one hand in order to fulfill its lusts, and on the other hand, condemn us afterwards if we were to act on them. Ironically, the flesh will use rationalization to overcome the guilt that follows. Rationalization is something to be aware of, especially if we have some sort of spiritual high or mountaintop experience. The temptation arises to succumb to the lust of the flesh while rationalizing our action based on our deeds. Because I spent time with the Lord in prayer and went to church today, I think it'll be okay to overindulge myself with Rocky Road ice cream. It's the concept of balancing the scale. A half-hour prayer equals ten scoops of ice cream. It's a works concept hiding behind spirituality, but in reality, it's carnal. It operates in reverse as well. I'll be sure to go to church tomorrow since I'm having 10 scoops of ice cream now. Of course, this principle goes beyond the realm of food. Whether it's the movies we watch or the way we treat our family, it's similar to what people do in the natural realm. A piece of pie equals 45 minutes on the treadmill. The danger is this mentality leads a person away from true repentance, even when the Lord is dealing with him or her. I know I shouldn't do that, but I did pray and I did read the Bible. I'll change in that area later. It's okay. God understands. He's merciful and forgiving. Walk in the Spirit. Remember, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Every day we must make the decision to either follow the Spirit or the flesh. As believers, if we decide to follow after the flesh, we will find peace eluding us until we repent and walk in the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. If you lack peace, you might ask yourself, am I walking in the spirit or actually walking in the flesh? For if you live after the flesh, you will die. And if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. Through the spirit, we are empowered to say no to the flesh and live in the fullness of righteousness. Likewise, Reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey in its lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Romans 6 verses 11 through 13. As stated before, whom we decide to present ourselves to follow is whom we will obey. If we present ourselves to God through the Spirit, we will follow after God. By staying focused on following the Spirit, we leave the concept of, I'm not following the flesh because it's no longer in our mind. If we are too focused on not messing up, we tend to mess up. However, if we focus on doing well and doing things with excellence, we're not concerned with messing things up. 
When our mind is on the Spirit, we forget about the flesh because we are too concerned with the things of the Spirit. On whom we set our mind will be whom we will follow, Salah. In the end, allow the Lord to show you anything that may be hindering you and lead you to true freedom from those things while enjoying full intimacy with God is you allow Him out of your box. And this concludes chapter 8 of Perfect Faith, His Faith, Not Ours. So we have one more chapter left, but let me suggest something. There was a lot in this chapter. We unpacked a lot of things, and it might be worth going over once again. And if you did find this was something helpful, maybe suggest someone else listen to it and because it might benefit them. But until next time, let's pray. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for giving them the clarity to see the things that you want them to see, that they may truly let you out of their box as well as themselves. Bless them in every way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Be blessed, my friend.